Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Episode 17, Existential Time and Vulgar Time. So we're approaching the end of Being in Time, and now we're looking at the final chapter. And what I want to do is I'll talk about the final chapter. That's going to be paragraph 78 to 82. And then I'm going to give you a little bonus extra episode on 83, the final paragraph in Being in Time, and take in the the broader picture of where we are in Being in Time, what we've learned, and what's going to happen next. And that's going to be called opening and presence because there's a place where Heidegger in the late work says that being in time could be retitled opening and presence but here we are in the final chapter of being in time and we finally I mean it's about time it's about time Martin about bloody time Martin we finally get to a description of the concept of time that Heidegger is trying to criticize in being in time. The ordinary or vulgar conception of time that's been alluded to, been at work in the whole book, but not really been made explicit. And here, in the last chapter, it is. The main claim of this chapter is to establish the relation of priority between three conceptions of time. Firstly, Primordial time, which is understood as ecstatic temporality. So the first layer of time, we've seen this in the previous chapters of Division 2. Primordial time, ecstatic temporality. Secondly, what Heidegger calls here within-timeness, within-timeness, inner Zeitigkeit of world time. World time is understood as a ready-to-hand conception of time. So, first layer of time, primordial time, ecstatic time, second order of time, world time, the time of the ready-to-hand world. Third um, conception of time, the vulgar, and the word vulgar is ordinary in, uh, in German. Ordinary or vulgar, vulgaire. The vulgar or present-at-hand notion of time as what Heidegger calls now time. Now time, we'll come to that. This is a time understood as an infinite succession of uniform nows. Of nows in the present, of the not yet now of the future, and the no longer now of the past. Heidegger's broad claim that he has uh, floated in being in time and is now making good on explaining. His broad claim is that this conception of time has its origin in Aristotle's physics and it influences the entire philosophical thinking of time and the theological thinking of time up to Hegel, who is discussed in paragraph 82, and even Bergson. Bergson, whose thinking of time is a competitor to what Heidegger is up to in being in time, 
and who has been barely mentioned in this book. There's a long, important footnote at the end of this chapter where Bergson is mentioned and dismissed. The main critical claim is that the ordinary or vulgar conception of time arises as the levelling off of primordial time and world time. Okay, so three conceptions of time. Primordial time, world time, and the ordinary conception of time. This chapter documents the genesis of the tyranny of the now. The genesis of a certain metaphysics of presence. Heidegger doesn't use this expression. It's an expression that's associated with the work of of Derrida, the metaphysics of presence. And um, we'll come back to Derrida very briefly at the end of this episode. The domination of the thinking of time by an idea of the present and a metaphysics of presence is really what's being documented in this chapter. I'm going to work through it in a fairly unimaginative way and then we'll draw some conclusions in the next episode, the final episode, and then see what we've learned in the time we've spent thinking through this, this book. Paragraph 78. Heidegger begins by acknowledging an oversight in his previous analysis. And we should note here, there's always an oversight in Heidegger, right? There's always something left over. We might think we've got Dasein into our grasp as a whole, but we haven't until this has happened, that's happened. Heidegger keeps making that move. So here we have another oversight. Namely, that the approach to primordial time that we've had explained in the previous chapters does not take account of the way in which Dasein reckons with time in its everyday life. Reckoning with time is a good way of uh, translating the German here, rechnen, rechnen, counting. But you can say in colloquial English, you know, I reckon it's about five minutes since you left, I reckon. It's about a day since that happened, I reckon. So reckoning is a, an everyday way of talking about the counting and accounting of time in an approximative and everyday way. And that's what Heidegger wants to focus on in this chapter. So the first task in relation to time reckoning is elucidating the relation between Dasein's everyday concern, its everyday dealing with time, and ecstatic temporality. This is the task of paragraph 79, which we're going to turn to now. So 79, what is the relationship between primordial time and world time, or authentic time and inauthentic time? Obviously, the relation between these two conceptions of time is one of derivation. World time, like the vulgar conception of time, is also dominated by a notion of the now. Now this, then that, and now that. That was just time. So time, in terms of everyday time, is also dominated by an idea of the now, 
but it's an everyday now, not a scientific now, not a present at hand now, a register hand now. These nows that we experience in day-to-day activity are datable, Heidegger says. They're datable. And the structure of world time has the structure of what Heidegger calls datability. That's on page 459. He's not referring to Tinder or dating apps, right? He's talking about datability in terms of the marking of the nows in the ordering of time. Heidegger claims that the inauthentic world time, inauthentic world time is derived from ecstatic temporality. And what you see here is Heidegger folding his analysis of the structure of inauthentic time as a making present that awaits and forgets. Remember, that's what happened uh, two chapters back in the relationship between temporality and everydayness. Division 2, Chapter 4. The structure of inauthentic time is a making present that awaits and forgets. He's going to uh, fold that into his notion of time reckoning. And this is worked out in um, page... 460 and 461. I could read these these entire pages, but I won't because it would take too much time. But if we look at those pages, I have the book open on page 460, or at least open in our minds, then we'll see that on 460, he talks about the making present which awaits and retains, interprets itself. So He's uh, looking at the way in which we move from ecstatic time to everyday time. And what Heidegger is saying here in relationship to what he's calling datability, the marking of different nows of time, is incredibly simple in German. He's using a very colloquial, everyday language. He's talking about now, then, And on a former occasion, on page 461, he talks about jetzt, now, dann, then, and damals. Damals on a former occasion. You can say, damals habe ich at that time, I have, or whatever. So the problem with the passage here, I'm thinking here of a passage on 461, middle of the page, Heidegger says, First full paragraph on 461, just by the 409 in the German. The horizons which belong to the now and the then, and the on that former occasion, jetzt, dann, damals, all have their source of ecstatical temporality. By reason of this, these horizons too have the character of datability as today, when, later on, when, and earlier, when. So the colloquialism of the German, it makes it harder to understand in English. But the claim here is very simple, is that our everyday way of dealing with time, what we call time in our day-to-day activity, is rooted in the ecstatical unity of temporality. Even when this might be unknown to us, unknown to Dasein. So what we normally think of time, everyday time, is rooted in temporality, primordial time. But that primordial time is, for the most part, concealed. On 462, we get the contrast between 
duration, the, the, the during of our concern with time, the duration of our concern with time, and the ecstatic stretch of temporality. So if the ecstatic stretch of temporality is one where the three ecstasies are happening at the same time, out of the future comes my having been, which is affirmed in the moment of vision, then in everyday world time that becomes a duration or what Heidegger calls a span, a span of time. That's the top of page uh, 462, about four lines in. Uh, understood as a span, he says, a spanner. So, also on 462, quoting a tiny bit further down on 462, two-thirds of the way down the page, Heidegger writes, when Dasein is living along in an everyday concernful manner, it just never understands itself as running along in a continuously enduring sequence of pure nows. And this is a thought that's going to be worked out in the subsequent paragraphs, right? The distinction between this everyday, ready-to-hand idea of world time and the vulgar or ordinary experience of time. In the next little bit on page 463, we get an interesting distinction between authentic and inauthentic temporalizing. And this is um, discussed, I think, in an illuminating way where Heidegger says that the irresolute person, the person that lacks resoluteness, loses their time by living in a present that awaits the next thing that befalls and forgets what happened. So inauthentic time, another way of thinking about inauthentic time, is in terms of losing time. Right? The um, inauthentic person always says, I have no time. I have no time. If inauthentic Dasein loses time, then authentic Dasein always has time. Insofar as it exists in the situation of the moment of vision, Dasein makes the time in which and through which it moves. Authentic Dasein is its time and always has time. Inauthentic Dasein has none never has time, is living in a constant state of incipient forgetfulness. Not having time and then constantly forgetting. The point, the larger point in the book is that we are both. We're both authentic and inauthentic. We both, uh, in certain circumstances, have time, affirm time, are in our time, and we can lose time. Time can go by. And we have the feeling of not having time. On page 463, he says, I'm skipping over some little bits here. Middle of the page on 463, he says, hence his characteristic, the characteristic we're talking about is inauthentic, Dasein, his characteristic way of talking, I have no time. Just as he who exists inauthentically is constantly losing time and never has any 
never has any, the temporality of authentic existence remains distinctive in that such existence in its resoluteness never loses time and always has time. Skipping over a sentence, when such a moment makes the situation authentically present, this making present does not itself take the lead, but is held in that future which is in the process of having been. Right? There's the structure of ecstatic temporality. Going on with the quote, one's existence in the moment of vision temporalizes itself as something that has been stretched along in a way which is fatefully whole in the sense of the authentic historical constancy of the self. Right? So that constancy of the self, which was discussed in Division 2, Chapter 3, is now uh, deepened, filled out with an idea of a historical constancy. The essence of history is us. And then um, there's an italicized section a little bit further down on page 463. The there is disclosed in a way which is grounded in Dasein's own temporality as ecstatically stretched along. And with this disclosure, a time is allotted to Dasein. Only because of this can Dasein, as fatically thrown, take its time and lose it. The takeaway here is that authentic Dasein takes its time. Inauthentic Dasein has no time. The philosophical stance is one where one takes one's time. Remember what Wittgenstein says. What does one philosopher say to another philosopher? What does one philosopher say to another philosopher? Take your time. Take your time. Paragraph 80. The concern in paragraph 80 is with concern, the time of concern. And what Heidegger's calling here within timeness. Within timeness refers to the time of entities other than us, entities other than Dasein. This is world time. So the time of concern, the time of our everyday circumspective concern in the world is world time. And we get in this paragraph a fascinating little history of time reckoning from the primitive, in quotation marks, natural time of Dasein, which is the sun, to, and one shadow, we'll come back to that sun and shadow as the primitive natural time of Dasein, to advanced alienated Dasein who measures time with clocks. Heidegger emphasizes time reckoning in order to emphasize that the way in which everyday Dasein reckons with time does not necessarily imply what he calls the application of numerical procedures in dating. Application of numerical procedures in dating. Meaning that time is the time of the world, the time of the everyday world is estimated. It is not an exact measure. That happens at a third stage, primordial time, world time, ordinary or vulgar time. There's a lot of good material 
in this paragraph. Particularly the line, which I'll come back to in a few minutes. Uh, it's quoted on page 471, where Heidegger says, Time first shows itself in the sky. Time first shows itself in the sky. Which means that time shows itself, and remember showing itself is the definition of phenomenon for Heidegger, shows itself in the sky, in space, the space of the world, the space of the world as a time-space unity, we could say. But let's back up a tiny bit. What about this um, everyday way of reckoning with time? What are we talking about here? The first way of reckoning with time, Heidegger insists, is natural. Natural. It is the distinction between day and night. And the first clock is therefore the sun. The first clock is the sun. So we begin, I find this interesting, kind of poetic, we begin with brightness, brightness, heller in German, heller. Heidegger writes four six five. Whereabouts on four six five? Yeah, halfway down the page. Everyday circumspective being in the world needs the possibility of sight, and this means that it needs brightness. If it is to deal concernfully with what is ready to hand within the present at hand, with the factical disclosedness of Dasein's world, nature has been uncovered for Dasein. In its throneness, Dasein has been surrendered to the changes of day and night. Day, with its brightness, gives it the possibility of sight. Night takes this away. The most natural measure of time is the day, the movement between day and night, the way in which time is first marked by brightness. I wake up in the morning and it's bright. I know it's day. And this is what Heidegger means on 471 by saying that time first shows itself in the sky. Time first shows itself in the sky or in the heavens. Uh, the word in German is heavens, Himmel, sky. This is very interesting. The movement between day and night is the first way of reckoning with time and reckoning with it publicly in a way that is shared. Right? So what we have in the, um, the first clock, the natural clock, the, the clock of the movement between day and night is a shared clock. On 466, Heidegger talks about the, the journeying sun, the time of the sky, the heavenly bodies. And then in the middle of page um, 466, he says, sentence beginning, this public dating in which everyone assigns himself his time is one which everyone can reckon on simultaneously. Again, this, uh, this natural clock of the day, movement between the day and night is, is common. It's a common reckoning here. It uses a publicly available measure, 
measure. This dating reckons with time in the sense of the sense of a measuring of time. And such measuring requires something by which time is to be measured, namely a clock. This implies that along with the temporality of Dasein as thrown, abandoned to the world and giving itself time, something like a clock is also discovered. That is something ready to hand, which in its regular recurrence has become accessible in one's making present awaitingly. Notice here, the making present awaitingly, he's building on that analysis of inauthentic time of the everyday world. He's building that into this analysis in a very skillful way. So the everyday measure of time is the sky, the movement between day and night. That's fine. A little footnote, side note, another way of thinking about the measure of time would not just be in relationship to the sun. It would be in relationship to water, something I think I've measured, I've mentioned before. The idea of the link between time and tide, time and tide, the movement of the tide, the rising and lowering of the sea. In some languages, in many of the languages with which I am more and less familiar, say some of the you know Northern European languages, the Nordic languages, uh, Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, Dutch, Flemish, and um, in English or in, in kind of older forms of English, tide is time and tide is time. Right? Tide is time and time is tide. The natural clock is the rhythm of the sea. Heidegger doesn't talk about this. Heidegger is a thinker of rivers, a thinker of hills, a thinker of mountains, and a thinker of woods. And this is fine if you live in a natural world of rivers, hills, mountains, woods, which is very much how things would have appeared in the southern German landscape that was the one that Heidegger was familiar with. If you grow up near the sea, or if you grow up on an island, where, or you grow up on the coast, where the primary element is water, seawater, and the rising and falling of seawater through the movement of tide, then we could end up with a different idea of the natural clock. In order to make sense of that, Heidegger would have to become a thinker of the sea and not just a thinker of rivers, which is something that he's not. He even mentions climbing in this chapter. Climbing is something one does. He liked to climb. He liked to ski. That's fine. But if you're from the flatlands, the coastal plains, uh, or close to those plains where the natural clock is the movement of tide, and indeed where the clock is not just measured in terms of tide, but can also be measured in terms of the perceived salt quantity in the air. People that live uh, on the coast can smell the tide changing. They can smell it in the air. So the natural clock is also, or can also be an, an olfactory clock, which is interesting. But let's leave that to one side. Heidegger is the thinker of rivers, and this comes out particularly in his discussions of the great poet Hölderlin, 
whose uh, many of whose great poems are about rivers, the Rhine, the Danube, but not a poet of the sea. So the first clock arises out of Dasein's being in the world insofar as our throne abandonment to the world is an aban- abandonment to a world regulated by the movement between day and night. So artificial clocks, the oldest artificial clocks, think about sundials, are rooted in the natural clock. Right? The way... Um, the sundial works is the sundial is an, is a something that's made it's an, an an object of artifice but it's rooted in the movement of the sun as a way of telling the time so artificial clocks are rooted in this natural clock and thereby in Darzine's temporality heidegger writes this is on page 466 he says let me find the quotation This is the bottom of page 466. Dasein has its basis in temporality, and the natural clock, which has already been discovered along with Dasein's fatical throneness, first furnishes the first motivation for the production and use of clocks, which will be somewhat more handy. It also makes this possible. Indeed, it does this in such a manner that these artificial clocks must be adjusted to that natural one if the time which is primarily discoverable in a natural clock is to be made accessible in its turn. This is the meaning of world time. Right? World time does not refer to a present-at-hand conception of the world, but the temporality of the ready-to-hand relationship to the world. That's what Heidegger is discussing here. The time of the ready-to-hand relationship to the world. On 467, he says, this is towards the bottom of the page, about 10 lines up on 467. Hence the time which makes itself public in the temporalizing of temporality is what we designate as world time. And we designate it thus, not just because it is present at hand as an entity within the world, which it never can be, but because it belongs to the world in the sense we have interpreted existential ontologically. In the following pages, we must show how the essential relations of the world structure, the in order to, for example, and the in order to is the way in which different elements of the register hand are pieced together. I use the hammer in order to bang nails into a piece of wood, are connected with public time. The then, when, for example, by reason of the ecstatico horizontal constitution of temporality. Only now, in any case, can the time with which we concern ourselves be completely characterized as to its structure. It is datable, spanned, and public, and as having this structure, it belongs to the world itself, right? So the time of concern, the time of the world, world time, the, reg- the time of the registered hand world is datable, spanned, and public. Datable, spanned, and public. We then get some fascinating remarks about different forms of clocks. And Heidegger makes a distinction between primitive, in quotation marks, and advanced, in quotation marks, Dasein. We've seen primitive Dasein before on a number of occasions, all the way back to the beginning of this book. Advanced Dasein, I do not believe, has been mentioned before. So that's in itself interesting. 
On 468, Heidegger says, Comparison, halfway down the page, 468, Comparison shows that for the advanced Dasein, the day and the presence of sunlight no longer have such a special function as they have for the primitive Dasein, on which our analysis of natural time reckoning has been based. That's itself interesting, right? That in a way, what we're, what's just being described in the world time of registered hand being in the world is primitive Dasein. So how stable is that distinction between primitive and advanced? Question mark. Continuing the quote. For the advanced Dasein has the advantage of even being able to turn night into day. Similarly, we no longer need to glance explicitly and immediately at the sun and its position to ascertain the time. The manufacture and use of measuring equipment of one's own permits one to read off the time directly by a clock produced especially for this purpose. The what o'clock is it? The what o'clock is it? So, advanced Dasein can turn night into day. Electricity, right? You can do this for yourselves at home. Turn on a light, turn off a light. You can turn night into day and day into night. And it can entirely disregard the sun for telling the time. Heidegger clearly thinks this is this happens, it's fine, but there is a preference for Heidegger, a preference for what he calls at the bottom of the page, 468, the final line of that page, the peasant's clock. And the peasant's clock is the shadow. Right? The way in which I can measure time in relationship to the way it shows itself in the sky, I can measure it by the length of my shadow. I can figure out whether it's noon or evening or morning or whatever. The other example he gives is the public sundial in the middle of 469, where time is given by the shadow of the pointer. And out of these natural, inexact, and locationally relative clocks, obviously the sun appears in different ways, in different places, and the angles will be different in different places, whether you're living in Mexico City or Nova Scotia, whether you're living in Bergen in Norway or living in um, Marrakesh, right? The the um, the way in which the time time shows up naturally will be different depending on one's position on the earth. Heidegger says on page 470, it's about a third of the way down the page, a third to a half. Thus, when time is measured, it is made public in such a way that it is encountered on each occasion and at any time for everyone as now and now and now. This time, which is universally accessible in clocks, is something that we come across as a present-at-hand multiplicity of nows, so to speak, though the measuring of time is not directed thematically towards time as such. So what we're moving towards now is the way in which out of this natural idea of time, the peasant's clock, and so on, uh, we move towards the present-at-hand idea of time, the third level of time, as a multiplicity of nows. He's going to develop in the next paragraph, uh, AC1. Also here, just to note, in case it's something that 
interest people. There's also a footnote reference to relativity theory, which is a footnote on 499. Here we shall not go into the problem of the measurement of time as treated in the theory of relativity. I mean, it's interesting that Heidegger was aware of the theory of relativity. It's something that we could think about. In many ways, the universe that Heidegger is assuming as the universe in relationship to which there will be the presence-at-hand conception of time is a Newtonian universe rather than an Einsteinian one. So we might think about whether all these questions of time and the relation of time to space would be made more complicated by a fuller understanding of the implications of the theory of relativity. Heidegger alerts us to that, but we might develop that independently. It's just a thought. But to close out this paragraph, and now I'm on page 471, we'll find a a familiar rhetorical trick that Heidegger makes, familiar to us from previous uh, gestures he's made in Being in Time. He'll say that world time is neither subjective nor objective but it's more objective than any object, more subjective than any subject. He says that on um, page 471, towards the bottom of the page. World time is more objective than any possible object, and so on and so forth. Remember, this is a characteristic rhetorical move. It's also an argument when Heidegger asks, well, does that mean that I'm making everything subjective? You'll say no, to presuppose an idea of the subject would be to presuppose a metaphysical ground, a kind of substratum to experience. And then to contrast that with objectivity is to beg the question about the nature of the presence at hand and the priority of that. So the world time as the time of the registered hand is more subjective than any subject and more objective than any object. The interesting thought here is that time is not just psychical, right? I think a line of thought that could be developed if you're interested in this, in your thinking, is that we can think about time as uh, the time of the soul, the time of the psyche. And Heidegger's going to come back to that a little bit later on in this chapter. But the idea of time as physical is something we haven't really Uh, thought about much in being in time, the relationship between time and nature. The way Heidegger will develop this um, in his uh, later work, from the origin of the work of art onwards, implicitly or more explicitly in some of the later work, would be in relationship to the Greek theme of nature or phusis. What is the time of nature, the time of phusis? given that phusis as nature is a kind of donation of time, a kind of shaping of time, a framing of time. So when Heidegger says time first shows itself in the sky, there is a suggestion there of a physical understanding of time, provided that physical is not understood in a present-at-hand sense, but in a more lived way. That's just a thought. But the point is that time is not just the the form of, you know, in a sense, as Kant would say, it's not just uh, in my head 
or in my head conceived of Daseinly as being in the world, time is also something which emerges in relationship to nature. There's a physical dimension here which needs to be uh, kept in mind. So now let's turn to paragraph 81. This is very interesting, 81. Heidegger turns to the genesis of the vulgar conception of time, the ordinary conception of time. The problem here is how world time, as he's just described it, the time of the registered world, is covered up in what Heidegger calls now time. And in now time, time is construed as a constant presence at hand. That is, as a, an infinite, uniform succession of nows flowing from the future to the past through the present. This is the idea of time as a line, right? A time is a line of uniform nows. The now that is the present, the no longer now that is the past, and the not yet now, which is the future. These nows are uniform. Now is now is now. They're infinite. They have no beginning and they have no end. And they come in succession, one after another. The key philosophical source for the vulgar conception of time is Aristotle's physics. Aristotle's physics, book four. In my uh, edition the Ross edition, that's Aristotle's Physics, Book 4, Greek Pagination 219b, 219b, if you want to find the source here. If you turn to Aristotle in the physics, Aristotle is trying to understand the nature of time and see it in terms of the idea of counting, of time as what is counted in the movement from the earlier to the later. It's worth looking at Aristotle on this um, because A, it's implicitly interesting and B, you can see that Heidegger's just not making this up. It's actually there in the text. Time for Aristotle is counted nows. Counted nows. And when we count a now, we make it present. And this is what Heidegger calls yetst Zeit, now time. On 474, we get, this is, this is introduced. He says on 474, first line, now here, now here, and so on. The nows are what get counted. And these show themselves in every now as nows which will, which will forthwith be no longer now. And nows which have just been not yet now. The world time which is cited in this manner in the use of clocks, we call the now time. So time is a sequence of nows simultaneously passing away and coming along in an endless succession as a flowing stream. Right? So time can be thought of it as a flowing, an unendingly flowing stream of nows. Time is endless. Time is infinite. Time has no gaps. Time can have 
no gaps. Time on this conception that Heidegger is going to oppose. Time is an infinite fullness. An infinite fullness that even Plato, Heidegger writes on 475, even Plato, three quarters of the way down the page on 475, because Plato was pretty clever for Heidegger, even Plato in the Timaeus calls time the moving image of eternity. The moving image of eternity. So how do we understand time? Well, time is this, this flowing stream, endless stream of nows, like a moving image of eternity. Eternity is, one imagines, static. It's not moving. Or if it is moving, it is static at the same time, something like that. The point is that time is irreversible. Time has a flow. It flows from the future to the past through the present. Heidegger will question all of these assumptions about time. For Heidegger, time is finite. We've seen that. It's finite. It's reversible. Ecstatic temporality is a reversal in the order of time, right? Out of the future comes the having been in the present. And time is not constant. It's not a constantly flowing stream. Time is intermittent. Time has gaps. Different speeds. It's not a flow. It's more of a a series of episodic moments, moments of vision or consummated in moments of vision. There's a discussion of eternity. Discussion is going too far. There's a footnote reference to eternity. If you want to um, follow that up, that's footnote 13, Roman 13 on page 499. And he talks about eternity in relationship to the nunc stands, the standing now, and the eternity of God as construed philosophically, whether it may be understood only as a more primordial temporality which is infinite, I'm quoting here 499, footnote 13, whether the way afforded by the via negationis et eminentiae is a possible one remains to be seen. What is Heidegger talking about? Well, he's talking, he's alluding to the idea of eternity as the standing now, the standing now, and alluding to the way in which there is in philosophy and in theology, a kind of, if you like, a divinization of the vulgar concept of time as, the, as a way of thinking about the constant presence at hand of God to himself and to us. Do you see here, the, uh, the idea is that we have, on the one hand, time as a flowing stream of nows, a moving image of eternity, and then eternity, which would be... Um, where God is, as a kind of metaphysical rendering, a kind of theologization of the vulgar conception of time. And the reference to the way of negation and the way of eminence is an allusion here to different ways of predicating God, predicating the divine in thinkers like Duns Scotus and uh, Aquinas. And Heidegger wrote his doctoral thesis 
on that material, the reference to God here, I think, is Heidegger being polite and uh, circumspect. He's not at all persuaded that we need an idea of God in order to understand time. On the contrary, we need to get rid of the idea of eternity and get rid of the idea of God. Whether this continues in Heidegger's later work or not is a, is a moot point that can be discussed, debated and interpreted on the basis of Heidegger's texts. But I think that Being in Time is a, an atheist book. He wants to get rid of God and eternity. Why do we say that time cannot be reversed? Right. So the, um, the present-at-hand conception of time, the vulgar conception of time, is a flowing stream which flows from the future to the past through the present and which cannot be reversed. If we conceive of time ecstatically, as I said a few minutes ago, it is reversed. It is at least back to front. The present, as the moment of vision, comes out of the having been, which comes out of the future. Yeah? Or historicity in Heidegger that we saw in the last chapter, historicity is the repetition of the past that comes out of the future as the event of the new. So Heidegger um, wants to argue that primordial time is reversible and vulgar time's irreversibility is simply um, a secondary way of thinking. Heidegger's claim is not that the vulgar conception of time is wrong, right? but that it's secondary. And the way he puts that thought in these pages is that the vulgar conception of time is a leveling off a leveling off. And indeed, it is a double leveling off. It is both a leveling off of world time or the within timeness of the ready to hand, but it's also a leveling off of ecstatic temporality. So, in adopting the vulgar conception of time, we lose, we level off and lose the true significance of time. On 474, he says, this is three quarters of the way down the page. In the ordinary interpretations of time as a sequence of nows, both datability and significance are missing. Datability is the way of marking the everyday ready-to-hand experience of time. Significance, remember? Significance is uh, the nature of worldhood, right? We find a world meaningful. In the vulgar, ordinary conception of time, datability and significance are missing. These two structures are not permitted to come to the fore when time is characterized as a pure succession. The ordinary interpretation of time covers them up. When these are covered up, the ecstatic horizon or constitution of temporality in which the datability and the significance of the now are grounded gets leveled off. So leveling off. How does this leveling off happen? How do we slip from authentic to inauthentic time? And how do we slip from inauthentic time into vulgar time? How does this happen? If Heidegger is right, how 
does it happen that our experience is dominated by this vulgar conception of time? The reason lies in Dasein's falling. Falling. Insofar as Dasein cannot bear to look its finitude in the face, it looks away from itself towards the world at which it falls and away, it falls away from an ordinary conception of world time to a more scientific conception of time. So the reason why there is a leveling off in our experience of time is explained by our propensity to fall, to fall at the world. On 478, Heidegger says he makes this point on 478 three quarters of the way down the page just after saying asking the question why cannot time be reversed he says the ordinary way of characterizing time is an endless irreversible sequence of nouns which passes away arises from the temporality of falling Dasein however such evasion such an evasion of our primordial experience of temporality must still know finitude. It must still be there in what Heidegger calls in these uh, pages a fugitive way. This is interesting. So that we must still know time as it is primordially, in a fugitive way, but it's hidden away and we refuse to see it. We fall to the world. Heidegger on 477 talks about this in relationship to a theme that we've kept coming back to in our discussion of being in time, the theme of enigma. And this is the last enigma in being in time, the last reference to enigma, rätsel, riddle. He says, last words on page 477, but just as he who flees in the face of death is pursued by it even as he evades it, and just as in turning away from it he must see it nonetheless, even the innocuous sequence, the innocuous infinite sequence of nows, which simply runs its course, imposes itself on Dasein in a remarkably enigmatical way. So the thought here is that we flee from the enigma. We run away from the enigma, the enigma of ourselves. We cover it up. It's still there in the same way as, you know, being towards death is still there, quietly uh, throbbing away inside our being, but we can forget about it, cover it up. Heidegger draws out the contrast between vulgar and ecstatic temporality in terms of the contrast between the primacy of the present versus the primacy of the future. Primacy of the present versus the primacy of the future. On 479, he makes this point. This is um, a quotation from the middle of 479. Second full paragraph. Ecstatico horizontal temporality temporalizes itself primarily in terms of the future. Okay, we know that. We've seen that in Division 2. 
Back to the quote. In the way time is ordinarily understood, however, the basic phenomenon of time is seen in the now. And indeed, in that pure now, which has been shorn in its full structure. That which they call the present. That which they call the present. One can gather from this that there is in principle no prospect that in terms of this kind of now, one can clarify the ecstatico-horizonal phenomenon of the moment of vision, which belongs to temporality, or even that one can derive it thus. So what Heidegger is describing here is the emergence of the metaphysics of the present, the metaphysics of presence, which misconceives time in order to disregard or level off the experience of finitude and radically finite time. The futurity that opens a having been that explodes in the presence of the moment of vision, right? that ecstatical experience of temporality gets misconceived, leveled off, dumbed down. Paragraph 82. On the basis of two quotations, and these two quotations appear at the bottom of page 479, the top of page 480, 479, 480, quotations from Aristotle and Augustine. The quotation from Aristotle is very roughly that if there were no soul, time would be impossible. If there were no soul, soul, time would be impossible. And Augustine, the issue there is the idea of time as extendedness. So Augustine says something like, it seemed to me that time is nothing else than extendedness, but what sort of thing it is an extendedness of, I do not know. And would be surprised if it were not an extendedness of the soul itself. So both Aristotle and Augustine talk about the relationship between time and the soul. So Heidegger then asks, after the connection between time and spirit. So if there's a connection between time and soul, Aristotle, Augustine... Uh, how could we think about that? Well, that what suggests itself to, to Heidegger at the end of this book is the connection between time and spirit. And this is what leads him to ponder Hegel's idea of spirit falling into time. Right? The idea of spirit falling into time. What's the point of this little discussion of Hegel? Sort of shoved at the end of the book. To be clear, it is not in order to criticise Hegel because that is considered pointless. On 480, Heidegger says, this is about three quarters of the way down on page 480, we shall make no claim to give an even relatively full treatment of the allied problems in Hegel, especially since criticizing him will not help us. Because Hegel's conception of time presents the most radical way in which the ordinary understanding of time has been given form conceptually and one which has received too little attention, a comparison of this conception with the idea of temporality, which we have expounded, is one that especially 
suggests itself. So Hegel is the most radical and representative way in which the vulgar conception of time has come, come down to us philosophically. Interestingly, Heidegger acknowledges that Kant has a more radical understanding of time than Hegel. And he makes that point in footnote 16 on page 499. It says exactly that on 499. On the other hand, the extent to which an even more radical understanding of time than Hegel's makes itself evident in Kant will be shown in the first division of the second part of this treatise. We're going to come back to that thought. So Hegel is a great philosophical illustration of the vulgar dominant understanding of time in the philosophical tradition. Hegel gives us an illustration of the privileging of the now in what we may now call the metaphysics of the present or the metaphysics of presence, where one can say that only the present is, whether the not yet present or the no longer present, and the present is an image of eternity. Let me put that more clearly. That's only the present is. The future is the not yet present. The past is the no longer present. All of the three dimensions of time have to be subsumed in this ordinary conception of time, uh, consummated in Hegel in terms of the domination of the present. For Heidegger, spirit does not fall into time, as Hegel says. Rather, spirit, in quotation marks, and remember how these quotation marks have been dancing around the whole of being in time, spirit um, exists as the temporalizing of temporality for Heidegger. Spirit, in quotation marks, is the temporalizing of temporality. Dasein is spirit as primordial temporality, right? is spirit in quotation marks. So Dasein is time. Dasein is finite time. The falling of Dasein is not into time, but out of primordial time into world time and from there into now time. So you see the point that Heidegger is making. Spirit does not fall into time, as Hegel says. Rather, Dasein is time, that Dasein falls out of primordial time into world time and from thence into the vulgar conception of time. So we fall into progressively leveled off experiences of temporality. On 486, conclusion of this little discussion of Hegel, Heidegger concludes halfway down the page. Our existential analytic of Dasein, on the contrary, starts with the concretion of phatically thrown existence itself in order to unveil temporality as that which primordially makes such existence possible. Okay? Spirit, in quotation marks, does not first fall into time, but it exists as the primordial temporalizing of temporality. Temporality temporalizes world time, within the horizon of which history can appear 
as historizing within time. Spirit does not fall into time, but factical existence falls as falling from primordial authentic temporality. This falling, however, has itself its existential possibility in the mode of temporalizing, a mode which belongs to temporality. I mean, it's not very elegantly stated, I grant you that. But the point, I think, is philosophically clear. Spirit does not fall into time. Dasein is time, but falls out of itself towards world time and the vulgar experience of time. The last thing I want to point out before we go to the coda is a footnote. If you go to page 500 of Being in Time, all the way to the end, page 500, there's a footnote, footnote 30, very long footnote. And uh, I want to just draw your attention to this because firstly, the footnote is worth reading. It's very long. It's very detailed. And for those of you who are interested in Derrida's work, as I am, then Derrida, I think in 1968, wrote an essay called Uzia and Grame. Uzia and Grame. Essence and uh, writing. Notes on a note in Heidegger's Being in Time. And it's a reading of Being in Time from the perspective of this footnote. And it's a very brilliant text. Uh, if you want to know how to read philosophical texts, then read Derrida. And he uses this footnote as a lever to open up the whole book. The basic point that Heidegger makes in the footnote is that the origin of the vulgar conception of time in Hegel has its roots in Aristotle and these roots continue to spread everywhere where philosophers try to think of time. I could quote the whole footnote, but I won't because it's very long. But let me just quote the last bit, bits of the last bit. So on page 500, in the penultimate paragraph, and this is um, you know, what Heidegger has been assuming uh, all the way through the book. Not that he's been hiding it, but he's not exactly been as forthcoming as one might have wished with this. But look at what he says here. Aristotle sees the essence of time in the now, the nun. I'm going to transliterate the Greek. Sees the essence of time in the nun, Hegel in the now. Aristotle takes the nun as horos, horizon. Hegel takes the now as a boundary. Aristotle understands the nun as stigma, as a number. Hegel interprets the now as a point, stigma point. Aristotle describes the nun as todeti. Hegel calls the now the absolute this. Aristotle follows tradition in connecting chronos with the sphera. Hegel stresses the circular course of time. Chronos is time in Greek, sphera is sphere, 
rounded sphere. Hegel stresses the circular course of time. To be sure, Hegel escapes the central tendency of the Aristotelian analysis, the tendency to expose a foundational connection, akaluthein, between the nun, the horos, the stigma, and the todeti. A lot of Greek there, and really rather confusing. But the point that Heidegger's making is very simple, is that Hegel's privileging of the now is the way in which he inherits Aristotle's conception of time based upon the primacy of the now, the primacy of the point, the primacy of the absolute this, and the idea of time even as a kind of sphere, a kind of circle, as a well-rounded circle that we can find in Parmenides, in the Parmenides poem, being is a well-rounded circle. And then, going back to the, um, the footnote, look what happens next. In its results, Bergson's view is in accord with Hegel's thesis that space is time. In spite of the very different reasons they've given, Bergson merely says the reverse, that time is space. And he goes on. Um, obviously, Bergson is competition for Heidegger because here's someone who's thought time in terms of what uh, Bergson calls uh, duration, la durée. So Heidegger's claim here, last footnote pretty much of being in time, is that Bergson reverses Aristotle. But by reversing him, he simply affirms the traditional conception of time. So Bergson is as much a traditional thinker as Hegel, and they're both indebted to and drawing from this Aristotelian idea of time. So, so much for him, right? So much for Bergson. And then the last thing from this footnote, which is, you know, nerdy. It's a nerdy, 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 nerdy footnote. But, you know, I guess I'm a bit of a nerd. The last lines of the footnote, Heidegger says, so far as anything essential has been achieved in today's analyses, which will take us beyond Aristotle and Kant, it pertains more to the way in which time is grasped and to our consciousness of time. We shall come back to this in the first and third divisions of part two. Parenthesis, the preceding sentence has been deleted from in the later editions. And uh, those parts of being in time weren't written. But the thought is interesting because what Heidegger is making allusion to here is the idea of time consciousness. Zeitbewusstsein in, uh, in Husserl, in Heidegger's teacher Husserl. And Heidegger, together with uh, Edith Stein, edited and introduced Husserl's lectures on internal time consciousness in 1928. So these things were on Heidegger's mind. The point that Heidegger's making elliptically and not as obviously as one would like is that all philosophical conceptions of time derive from Aristotle, Hegel and Bergson included. And if there's a way of stepping beyond that, then we have to look at time consciousness. Husserl is onto something. The problem with time consciousness is the idea of consciousness. And what we've seen in being in time is a persistent 
refusal to talk about us in terms of consciousness. So in terms of uh, Dasein's temporality, well, Husserl is prefiguring what Heidegger is achieving in being a time. A lot more time could be spent on this chapter, but I want to close it out there and then come back for a short final episode, which will be called Opening and Presence. Thank you very much for listening.